Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for being with us on ADH. We have a riveting program for you tonight. One of the world's most eminent climate change figures, a man who was one of the world's leading greenies for over 20 years, Michael Schellenberger will join me. When asked why he changed his mind when he said of climate change, it's not even our most serious environmental problem, and quote, once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it's hard not to feel duped, Michael Schellenberger said, I changed my mind when I realised you can't power a modern economy on solar and wind. I repeat, I changed my mind when I realised you can't power a modern economy on solar and wind. Albo and Chris Bowen wouldn't have heard of Michael Schellenberger, let alone read his extraordinary text. There it is, Apocalypse Never, magnificent read, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Michael Schellenberger coming up. I think I told you from the moment that the New South Wales Premier Perrottet stood down Stuart Ayres, the Deputy Leader of the Party in New South Wales and the Minister for Everything, Trade, Tourism, Sport and Western Sydney and what is rare, a very effective minister where most are ineffective. I said it was a pigeon-livered performance by Premier Perrottet that there were questions, he said, over whether Ayres had breached the Ministerial Code of Conduct. Remember I said at the time, well, if there were questions, then answer the questions before you stand the bloke down. Well, then the issue was tossed to the high-profile barrister, Bruce McClintock SC, to investigate. Now, if that doesn't defy belief, does this? McClintock has apparently reported on the matter. Perrottet hasn't read the report, but his chief of staff has. Perrottet came to the premiership as a young bloke with a strong philosophical base. He has been a profound disappointment. Now he's made to look completely stupid. He's got a report into his deputy leader, whom he stood down, but he hasn't read it, but his chief of staff has. And I have to tell you, there are real reservations about the ability of his chief of staff. Another of Perrottet's ministers, Eleni Patinos, she was sacked because she stood up to this bullying building commissioner Chandler. We still don't know why Patinos, uh, Eleni Patinos was sacked, but I'll tell you something. She showed more guts than her leader in standing up to Chandler, but Patinos gets the chop and Chandler has been reinstated. More about that in a later program. And now we learn that the pompous Federal Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, talking about ministerial codes of conduct, has apparently invested in an equities fund that's the largest shareholder in a firm that funds litigation and legal class actions in Australia legal class actions, but Dreyfus is the Attorney General. Dreyfus denies he's breached the Ministerial Code of Conduct, but he is the Attorney General, and the Federal Opposition today were arguing in Parliament that Dreyfus is an investor in a fund which is the largest shareholder in a firm which funds legal actions. Dreyfus has said he'll get advice. That's what they all say, don't they? We'll get on with the show, and what a show it is. You are watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. It's often been said that Canberra becoming the national capital places politicians out of touch with the real world. My view is that almost all politicians have too many staff working for them. I remember when I worked for Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser, there were three of us on the staff. That's right. 
plus an economics professor, John Rose, on whom the Prime Minister could call when needed, three staff. The current Prime Minister has more than 50. The problem with this is that constituents write and the letters are never seen by the person who should be answering them, the member himself, even if that member is the Prime Minister. I answer all my correspondence. There's a mountain of it, but it's how I know what's going on. And I know there's only one gig in town from your correspondence, three words, cost of living. It's horrendous. I'm not blaming the Albanese government, nor am I blaming the war in Ukraine. But we've had floods and fires, and that has created significant problems with produce on your supermarket shelves or building materials to rebuild after natural disasters. On top of that, staff shortages. But there's also a highly paid public figure on over a million dollars who's at the centre of this avoidable mess. And that is this Governor of the Reserve Bank, one Dr Philip Lowe. I've spoken about this before. Far be it from me to agree with the Greens, but their Tasmanian Senator Nick McKim two days ago said bluntly and correctly that Dr Philip Lowe had got it badly wrong and Dr Lowe should go. Senator Matt Canavan, who you hear often here, highly intelligent, magnificent politician, has made the same point that many Australians took on debt under the false promise that interest rates wouldn't rise for some time. Lowe said last November, quote, it is still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024. Well, he went further, also last November, quote, I find it difficult to understand why rate rises are being priced in the next year, that is this year, or even in early 2023. Unquote. It's a monstrous failure. Lowe's paid a million dollars plus and he's got a stack of staff and his job is to control inflation. And as Matt Canavan says correctly, in the last couple of years, they've been going to climate change conferences and focusing on diversity and inclusion and not focusing on the real job inflation. Said Matt Canavan this week, quote, I think the RBA governor should have gone when he promised not to raise rates until 2024, and now he's broken that promise five times. Said Matt Canavan, there has to be accountability. Well, having raised interest rates five times in May, June, July, August and September, Lowe now made a speech in Melbourne today to say that the Reserve Bank would need to lift interest rates at least twice more to ensure the, quote, scourge, his word, of inflation is contained. And he admitted that only months ago, last November, the Reserve Bank and other central banks had been caught, quote, flat-footed. Now, there are real risks here because we are in a cost-of-living crisis brought on by rising prices, creating inflation, and the answer apparently is the blunt instrument of interest rates. Who is to say this bloke is right? He's been wrong so often in the past. We don't have any evidence of what impact the previous five increases have had, yet the bloke's now talking about jacking up interest rates further, and he's unchallengeable. The Reserve Bank's independent. It has the final say. Low should go. Well, there are two pluses against the low negative. This week's Bureau of Statistics figures indicate our economy is in good shape. That is a plus. GDP was up in the three months to June. Household spending was up. Travelling at home and abroad was up by 37%. Everyone you knows in Europe, don't they? There was a 9% increase in spending at cafes and restaurants because people just want to get out. The second plus is that this new treasurer, Dr. Jim Chalmers, I think is making more than a fair fist of things. 
He has warned that cost of living relief in the October budget isn't likely to provide extra income support beyond things like cheaper medications and childcare. He rightly said that responsible cost of living support must not add inflationary pressures, which of course would let this bloke at the Reserve Bank attack us all yet again. You see, he made a mess of it only eight months ago, so now he's gone nuts and keeps threatening more and more interest rate increases without the resources to assess the impact of those he has already imposed. But Dr Chalmers, one word to you, save our money and don't start providing taxpayer bribes to shift Australians to electric vehicles. I'll be talking to the world acclaimed Michael Schellenberger very shortly. This was the bloke who was a mad environmentalist, greenie once. He's changed direction on climate change. He said, I changed my mind when I realised you can't power a modern economy on solar and wind. Are you listening, Chris Bowen? I'll talk to Michael Schellenberger in a moment. But he's the man who said on climate change, once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it's not hard to feel duped. But back to Jim Chalmers and electric vehicles. Michael Schellenberger has written, quote, to replace the entire transportation sector with electric cars, you would need to go from 18% renewables, wind and solar, to something like 150%. He says, that's even if you thought, you could store the stuff. So Jim Chalmers, I think you're doing a good job, but don't blot your copybook. Let the consumer decide. No more bribes to renewables or the buyers of electric vehicles. End the government spending. Stop wasting money on ideological and damaging nonsense. And on his track record to date, no one should be taking the Governor of the Reserve Bank seriously. Look, I've said this to you often and I'll say it again. The Albanese government has surprised me by putting all its eggs in two baskets, a voice to the parliament, which is divisive and can only fail in a referendum, and then legislating for a 43% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions by 2030. 82% of our energy from renewables by 2030, 100% by 2050. And to use the language of the pub, you wonder if people consumed by left-wing ideology haven't gone off their heads. You'll also know that they won't tell us the cost of such an energy policy. Indeed, ask such a question and you're treated as if you're dumb or some sort of charlatan. The onus here is on the opposition leader, Peter Dutton. If I were Peter Dutton, I'd be booting this climate change legislation right out of the political paddock. The public know we are a resource-rich superpower. What they don't understand is why we can't have the world's cheapest electricity. Remember, it's only three years ago there was a conference in Brisbane and for $320,000 of your money, they flew out Al Gore, who was going to, quote unquote, train Australia's climate volunteers and, quote, communicate the urgency of the climate crisis, unquote. This is the bloke who couldn't win a majority of votes in his own state of Tennessee when he ran for the presidency against George Bush. His own people in Tennessee were awake up to him. I said at the time that the Queensland government wasn't, but that same Queensland government is today talking about increasing its renewable energy target to 50% by 2030, that's in eight years time, despite having met less than half of its existing target and facing cost increases of up to 40% for new projects. But these dumbbells in Queensland are going to release their 10-year energy strategy within weeks. And they're proudly boasting that their renewable target will, quote, be more ambitious, unquote, 
and Cabinet, mostly comprised of wood ducks who would have never read anything, are going to sign off on this thing. But it's no different in New South Wales with Keane and Perrottet, no different with Andrews in Victoria or with Albanese and Bowen in Canberra. This renewable energy nonsense is rammed down the throats of kids in classrooms under the, the, the guise of climate change. It infects political and educational discourse everywhere you go. Let me give you an example. The AGL mob, whom I would describe as un-Australian, have a massive solar plant at Ningen. By next year, they would have closed Liddell, 2,000 megawatts of power. But to replace the 2,000 megawatt Liddell power station would require 69 Ningens. And Ningen is heavily subsidised by you, by the taxpayer. That's why AGL are in the game. Rent seekers, taxpayers' money. But if you need 69 Ningens to replace Liddell, you'll need 93 million solar panels, costing over $20 billion. Then there's the cost of the additional transmission lines and backup for when the sun is not shining. It would occupy an area of over 17,000 hectares, which is equivalent to 28 Melbourne CBDs. The International Energy Agency said that world energy demand is growing, growing, by just under 2,000 terawatt hours. That's growth. We consumed last financial year about 200 terawatt hours. So on the question of growth, Lord Ridley, the British politician and author wrote four years ago, quote, if wind turbines were to supply all of that, all of that growth, but no more, that's just growth, how many wind turbines would we need to build each year? The answer is nearly 350,000. That's just to meet the growth in energy demand. But as Lord Ridley has said, 350,000 wind turbines is about one and a half times as many as have been built in the world since governments started pouring consumer money into this so-called industry in the early 2000s. And as Lord Ridley said, quote, at a density of very roughly 50 acres per megawatt, typical for wind farms, that many turbines would require a land area greater than the British Isles, including Ireland, every year. And as he said, if we kept this up for 50 years, we would have covered every square mile of land area the size of Russia with wind farms. Well, enter Michael Schellenberger to address this apocalyptic nonsense, which is damaging us all. Michael Schellenberger was a world-renowned environmental activist for 20 years. In his book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmists, on your screens there, magnificent read this and easy to read, why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, Michael Schellenberger apologised in July 2020 for, quote, the climate scare we have created over the past 30 years. Of climate change, Michael said, quote, it's not even our most serious environmental problem. He wrote, once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it's hard not to feel duped. Well, Michael Schellenberger is a former Democratic candidate for office in California. And just on that, last October, Michael Schellenberger released his latest book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. Extraordinary read. It's about housing, homelessness and drugs. And he's called on California to declare a state of emergency. Even as a former Democrat candidate for office in California, he argues that Democrats have allowed all of this to fester in their cities. But back to this national economic suicide note, climate change. It's lovely to talk to Michael Schellenberger again, and he joins me. Michael, thank you for your time. Uh, why are we so dumb? Why are we, to use your words, badly misinformed? And how have we been duped?
Well, thanks. It's great to be with you, and I look forward to uh, being in Sydney uh, with you next month. I, I think it's fair to say that apocalyptic environmentalism has become the dominant religion of so-called secular people. We are people are treating nature as a kind of victim god that has to be, on the one hand, harmonized with through renewables, but also is punishing us with climate change. So it's a completely superstitious mythology. It's taken us a very dangerous path. We can see that. Uh, we now know that solar panels and batteries are mostly made by incarcerated Uyghur Muslims in China. We've seen the dangers of becoming dependent on a totalitarian regime. Europe is in the worst energy crisis in 50 years because it was seduced by Vladimir Putin. Well, now the risk is that by becoming dependent on renewables, we're going to become dependent on China. I think a few data points are important here. Uh, California has tried to move to renewables over the last decade. In truth, we produce 10% less of our electricity from zero carbon energy sources because we've had less rain for the hydroelectric dams and also because we shut down nuclear power plants. Over that same period, we saw electricity prices rise sevenfold more than they did in the rest of the United States. California now has the most expensive electricity in the world, and we are in the midst of the fourth night of power outages in California. They're having a hard time keeping the lights on. All of the promises they told us about batteries and solar panels turned out to be a gigantic lie. This We've gone down a very dangerous road. We need a harder look at better solutions, particularly natural gas and nuclear power. But Michael, that's magnificent what you've just told us. How come though we just are blind and deaf to these realities? Well, I mean, look, there's sort of financial motives. There's also power motives. And then it's a religion. So obviously there's some big financial interests tied up with Chinese renewable energy companies, battery companies. They've been selling a mythology around renewables. Obviously, people seeking power in our society try to control people through fear, making them afraid of climate change as though it's an apocalyptic threat. It's not. There is no scenario of apocalyptic uh, disaster in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's reports. Not only that, but every single Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change scenario predicts higher living standards than the fewer, not lower living standards. The real threat are climate policies which we're seeing play out in real time in Europe, which are resulting in energy scarcity, Absolutely. energy shortages, fertilizer shortages, the closure of steel and aluminum factories. Europe is headed towards severe economic recession, if not depression. And Australia, the United States and other countries won't be far behind if we continue down this terrible path of really land-intensive, environmentally degrading renewables. Magnificent. It's important to remember that renewables could not power the Industrial Revolution. They required too much land, about 300 times more land for solar panels than for a natural gas plant or a nuclear plant. They require three to seven times more materials like copper and rare earths, steel and concrete. So what you get with renewables are a kind of parasitic energy source that degrade the natural environment and reduce economic growth. It's a recipe for decivilization, 
not for economic growth and prosperity. Well, can I just say to viewers, you've heard all of that and we've got a government now doing the exact opposite. We've got a government who's entering the kind of environment that Michael has told us about. This is a man who was once a world-renowned environmentalist, but Michael, you have said, and I quote, the transition to renewables was doomed because modern industrial people, no matter how romantic they are, don't want to return to pre-modern life. You said the reason renewables can't power modern civilization is because they were never meant to. And you've asked why anybody thought they could. And you also wrote as we're swapped with this electric vehicle madness, and I quote you here, to replace the entire transportation sector with electric cars, you'd need to go from 18% renewables, wind and solar, to something like 150%. That is, even if you thought you could store the stuff. Michael, obviously you know nothing because I'm sure there's not a person in Canberra who's even read your book or listens to this kind of stuff. What are the lessons of Germany and Europe that we should be learning now? Well, you know, Germany and Europe are headed to disaster. They're shutting down fertilizer factories. They're shutting down steel factories, aluminum. Businesses are going to go bankrupt. Uh, Europe is in a very bad way. They got themselves, they invested too much on renewables. They became too dependent on Russian natural gas. They shut down their nuclear and coal plants. They were in the midst of a secular religion. It's a kind of craze. That's the only way to describe it. Now, I should say that it's been a wake-up call, the energy crisis in Europe. <clears throat> the new British prime minister has just announced that they will begin fracking for natural gas in order to save their economy. We've now seen in both Japan and South Korea, they're cutting the subsidies for renewables, they're reopening their nuclear plants, and in fact, they're committed to building new nuclear power plants. Similarly, France has committed to building new nuclear power plants and there's even talk in the United States of building new ones. And our efforts in California have paid off. Yeah. They've actually decided to keep operating a nuclear plant that they had attempted to shut down within two years. It will now operate at least until the end of the decade and perhaps much but Mark, longer than that. Mark, Mark just so interrupt you this there. energy I mean, crisis is a real wake up. Yeah, can I just interrupt you there by telling you, I mean, you know this anyway, but to our viewers, we have 40% of the world's uranium reserves. You've just heard what Michael has said about nuclear pants. We've got 40% of the world's uranium reserves. We don't have one nuclear reactor, not one, but 30 countries are operating 450 of them for electricity generated around the world. There are 60 nuclear plants under construction in 15 countries, of course, 20 under construction in China. Michael, it's illegal to operate a nuclear reactor in Australia. Please give our viewers a message. Well, the radical left in Australia and in many other parts of the world manipulated people's emotions. They led people to think that nuclear power plants are the same as nuclear weapons. It's obviously ridiculous. We know from every major peer-reviewed study that nuclear energy is the safest way to produce electricity. Even the worst accidents, we see that even when some radiation escapes, it's just not very much and it's not very harmful. By contrast, six million people's lives every year are shortened by breathing the smoke from burning wood and dung and coal. So Australia is 
sort of last to the nuclear party. I do think that nuclear will arrive in Australia sooner rather than later. The Australia is a part of the global economy and we're seeing a, a significant energy crisis. But more than that, nuclear provides energy security. It provides national security. Even Japan, which was very afraid of nuclear after the Fukushima accident in 2011, is returning to nuclear because it needs nuclear in order to have a stable electricity supply. But electricity and energy prices are also rising in Australia. You're somewhat protected from it because you have significant coal reserves, but there is simply no way that the Australian government in the future will allow heavy dependency on Chinese-made solar panels. Mm. Frankly, it's unethical because they're being made by Muslims Correct. who are incarcerated Correct. in concentration camps. But we're the, only, we're the only G20 country without nuclear power. We are the only G20 country without nuclear power. Let me just ask you this. 583 coal-fired power stations are under construction or planned in China. A stack of them in India, Indonesia, Turkey, Vietnam, Japan. None in Australia. Most of them using Australian coal. Uh, what's wrong with a high-efficiency, low-emission coal-fired power station? They won't allow them to build them here, but what's wrong with that? I mean, the fact is that, you know, all around the world, I think most people, when you really look at these different energy sources, we can see that nuclear is sort of the king of all power sources. It produces reliable, low cost electricity without any air or water pollution. Natural gas is second best. It does produce some emissions and some pollution, but half as much as coal. But if, but if you um, need reliable electricity, coal has been the way that countries have traditionally developed it. Mm. I think if Australia is in, in a position where it has to choose between renewables and coal, it's going to need a lot of coal in order to keep the lights on and prevent its economy right. from going into right. recession due to high electricity prices. Well, it just comes But to Australia this. also has substantial gas reserves. Yeah. And if you can tap your gas reserves, that's also beneficial. But of course, this is the point. Gas is a fossil fuel as well. I mean, these people just haven't done any reading, any scholarship, any homework. I mean, just sticking to this renewable thing, you have said in the past that all... Uh, <laughs> We've got to say this because we're legislating this stuff. Michael Schellenberger has said that all existing renewable technologies do is to make the electricity system chaotic. And you've said that opposition to nuclear was like a superstitious religious belief. Now, this man was Time magazine's hero of the environment that listening tonight in 2008. He said, like most people, I started out pretty anti-nuclear. But then you said this, quote, I changed my mind when I realised you can't power a modern economy on solar and wind. I repeat, the man you're watching now said, I changed my mind. I mean, he was mad anti-nuclear and he's an environmentalist and all the rest of it. I changed my mind when I realised that you can't power a modern economy on solar and wind. Michael, our nation and our people are being told that we will have 100% renewables by 2050. Everything will be an electric vehicle. Coal-fired power stations will close down. There'll be no nuclear energy. And they pretend that manufacturing, business and consumers and households will be able to go on in this happy nirvana. Please educate us before you go tonight. Well, sure. And I should say, yeah, I was 14 years old when the Chernobyl accident happened. I found it very scary as a young, as a boy and as a young man. Um, I just had to get educated. I read the World Health Organization reports about Chernobyl. I realized that it wasn't what I thought it was. 
Um, and then I also discovered the significant environmental impacts of renewable energy. Lots of toxic waste. There is no solution to the waste. It requires huge amounts of land and this heavy dependence on, frankly, very unethical sources of energy coming from China. But I think Australians just need to look at Germany. Germany has spent almost a half trillion dollars on its renewables experiment to sometimes get about half of its electricity from renewables, but at a consequence of dependence on Russian natural gas and now the worst energy crisis, the worst economic crisis since World War II. So you see, even Germany is having to keep its nuclear plants, its coal plants back online. They're frantically building liquefied natural gas terminals to import gas from other countries. So it's a dangerous road to depend on weather-dependent, unreliable energy sources. Right. That's the bottom line. Bottom Renewables line. are energy dilute. They can't power industrial civilization. 100%. Michael, we could talk all night. We've got medieval zealots here praying at the altar of windmills and solar panels to power our economic prosperity. I've called it a national economic suicide note. Look, it's great to talk to you. I know you're coming to Australia. We'll try and talk to you again then. Uh, you and I are both speaking at the CPAC conference. Can I say to people, to our viewers out there, you can hear Michael again. The CPAC conference is here in Sydney on October 1 and 2. And you just go to the website cpac.network and register cpac.network and you'll be hearing a lot of distinguished speakers, but none more so than the man you've just heard tonight, Michael Schellenberger. Thank you for your time and your scholarship, Michael. I hope we can talk again. Good to be with you. There he is, Michael Schellenberger. That's a, an education and a form of entertainment, is it not? I don't want to be criticising the new government all the time, that's the federal government, but you have to say things as they are, not as some would like them to be. I believe, as I said earlier, that the government has pulled the wrong rein on two big issues which will fail, a voice to parliament and 82% renewables by 2030. But who were they listening to on this critical issue in outback communities, the cashless debit card? The scheme was introduced when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister. He had been to Aboriginal communities. He'd lived with them and he heard their concerns. The card was designed to encourage socially responsible behaviour by quarantining 80% of a person's welfare payments on a debit card to prevent it being spent on alcohol and gambling. It was initially introduced in Seduna, South Australia, East Kimberley and the Goldfields in WA and then expanded to Bundaberg and Harvey Bay in Queensland. But the Labor Party made an election commitment to get rid of it, and there was little political debate. I spoke to Warren Mundine on air in June about this. He's the chair of the Indigenous Advisory Council. He said, quote, I find it really frustrating when you're trying to make communities safe, encourage businesses to go into communities and deal with real problems for women and kids. I just hope to God this is not a political move and they have some serious plans, unquote. The Seduna Council Chief Executive, Geoffrey Moffat, said that when this system is shut down, there could be a return to what many in the town believe were the bad old days of rampant violence, alcohol and gambling abuse. The Seduna Council Chief Executive described the cashless debit card as, quote, immensely successful. The former Seduna Mayor, Alan Souter, who was on the ground in 2016 when the card was introduced in a trial, said that before the card, bashings, molestations and other offences were common. Superintendent Paul Barr of the South Australian Police 
said statistics showed a general decline in victim-based crime in Sejuna over the past year of about 16% and assaults were down by 13%. Now, the cashless debit card quarantined, as I said, 80% of income support payments to not be spent on alcohol and gambling, nor to withdraw cash. 20% of the support money went into the individual's account. Now, some Labor members are starting to speak up, along with the independent senator from the ACT, David Pocock, who's expressed concern over Labor's legislation to abolish the card. There is a Senate inquiry into the government's bill to abolish the cashless debit card. It heard evidence from federal bureaucrats last week that it could take at least a year to find a technological, technologically equal replacement for the card. Indigenous leaders have said the government risks leaving a vacuum if it rushes the abolition of the cashless debit card, but it has already rushed legislation through the lower house last month to abolish the card. Here is the Labor Party again, ideology over reality. Noel Pearson, a respected voice for Indigenous Australians said simply, and I quote, you will repeal the card and then you will walk away and leave us to the violence, leave us to the hunger, leave us to the neglected children, unquote. Prime Minister, don't allow this to happen on your watch. Leave things alone. Well, it's our weekly segment of getting informed by some wonderful minds from Melbourne's Institute of Public Affairs. Daniel Wilde is the articulate and very persuasive Deputy Executive Director. In a keynote address yesterday at the Pastoralists and Graziers Association of Western Australia in Perth, Daniel Wilde released a new research report by the IPA. Australia's green, I know all about this, I can tell you, I'm a farmer's son. Australia's green tape army a comparative analysis of the growth of the environmental bureaucracy and the agricultural sector. I mean, you'll love this. The report says, quote, each year there are more city-based bureaucrats with clipboards and don't the farmers hate them. Each year there are more city-based bureaucrats with clipboards telling farmers what they can and can't do than there are actual farmers, unquote. Red and green tape strangling Australia's farming future. And as I said, as a farmer's son, can I just simply say, isn't that the case wherever you go on a farm anywhere in Australia? Daniel joins us again. Daniel, congratulations on another splendid piece of research. So you're saying since the year 2000, the size of the federal environmental bureaucracy has grown three times faster than the agricultural sector itself. That's right, Alan. Great to be with you as always. And as we're seeing, the red and green tape is hamstringing the ability of farmers and our primary industry to get on with their job of growing food and fibre uh, for Australia and for the rest of the world. And as you would know better than anyone else, it's these bureaucrats who are disconnected from life on the farm and life on the land. Um, they don't know how wealth is created. You know, if you're driving down the road and you go past a truck full of sheep, you're not just driving past sheep, you're driving past revenue for a new hospital. When you go past a paddock full of grain, there's revenue for a new school. When you go past a cattle station, there's revenue for a new bridge or road 
or tunnel. It is from our primary industry, whether you're digging up and developing things from beneath the ground or growing things above the ground and then getting that produce to market and selling it in Australia or overseas, which earns export revenue. That is how wealth is created and that is how it's reinvested in our communities for everyone across our nation to benefit. But these bureaucrats are getting in the way of that. We've got an energy security crisis and a food security crisis around the world and governments need to get on with the job of cutting red tape and cutting green tape so our farmers can get on with their jobs. A thousand percent correct. I was just about to say there, the problem is, of course, they behave in this way because politicians allow them to. You see, the trouble, Daniel, is that the productive sector, the agriculturally productive sector, west of the Great Dividing Range, has only got a handful of representatives in the parliament. And then you get the National Party, which should change its name back to the Country Party and see the country people are represented. It's gone completely woke. I mean, the bloke who replaced Barnaby Joyce, David Littleproud, has embraced 100% renewables. And that can't be achieved, as you and I have said on this program, without smashing the agricultural sector, who, along with transport, are responsible for as many carbon dioxide emissions as electricity generation. So the poor farmer don't has hardly anyone to represent him. Spot on, Alan. And look, the point I would make is every single step in the agricultural production process is going to be affected uh, and significantly impacted by net zero targets and emissions reduction requirements, whether it's getting diesel in your tractor, whether it's the electricity you need for your shearing shed or your packing plant, whether it's transporting goods to markets and supermarkets, whether it's exporting that produce overseas on, on ships and getting them to the ports. Every single step of the process involves some form of uh, carbon emissions. And we've seen this happening right around the world, including in the United Kingdom, for example, where you've got uh, governments and corporates buying up land and locking it up. Uh, so rather than producing produce, it's being used for carbon credits, uh, which provides no value whatsoever for our society. And it's stopping the produce being grown. It's making farmland less productive. But even more important than that, it is depriving farmers and landowners of their own private it property. Is. It's it their is. land. It's, it not, it's not the government's, it it's is. their land, and they mm. should be free to use it in the way they want. Well, I mean, you've just got to look at what's happening in the Netherlands at the moment with farmers there. They're driving their tractors down the streets because of this climate change nonsense. I've just spoken, by the way, on the program to someone you know, Michael Schellenberger, a world-renowned authority yeah. on this, and he's written about, quote, his words, the climate scare we have created over the past 30 years and that, quote, climate change is not even our most serious environmental problem. And he says, once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it is hard not to feel duped. But as you say, despite pledges from successive governments to relieve farmers of all these regulations, the bureaucrats keep piling it on. They do keep piling it on. And to me, Alan, look, there's three very simple principles that all governments should follow. The first is that if something's regulated at the council level, it shouldn't be regulated at the state level. If it's regulated at the state level, it shouldn't be regulated at the federal level because all that does is create duplication with no benefit. Uh, the second principle is that farmers know best about how to manage their land. They Absolutely. are the best environmental stewards. This idea that farmers don't have an incentive or don't care about their animals or their land is wrong because they want great produce they know how to manage their land. And in most cases, they want to see that land flourish for the next generation. So they're the ones that know how to manage their land, not bureaucrats. And look, the third point is governments have to cut red tape persistently. We saw an enormous success 
under the Trump administration with one simple rule. What Trump said was, okay, if you want to introduce a new rule, you can do that, but you must get rid of two existing rules which are on the books to begin with. So that is a one in, two out Mm -hmm. rule for the Mm -hmm. bureaucrats uh, because what that does is it means they have to think about the cost of what they're doing and that's how you get red tape down over the long term. Absolutely. To my viewers, let me just say this paper that Daniel and the IPA produced demonstrates, and I'll get Daniel to comment on this, but think about this. You've got to say it slowly. The federal environmental bureaucracy has more than tripled while employment in agriculture throughout the country has declined by a fifth. Or, another finding, the cost of the federal government's environmental bureaucracy has grown, that's the bureaucracy has grown, the cost of it, at almost three times the rate of the size of Australia's entire agricultural sector. Look, I know it's an overused word, Daniel, but this is a scandal. It is a scandal, Alan. It's overused, but it's right to use that word in this case. And look, we've travelled through North Queensland, through the Hunter Valley and throughout Western Australia's regions, talking to local communities about our research and about these issues. And so many farmers and landowners simply give up. You know, this Mm. is, you don't hear about this Mm. in the news, but, you know, every single minute, every single hour, every single day, they need to spend on filling out forms or getting a licence or getting an approval or sending documents back to a bureaucrat is an hour or a minute or a day less. Firstly, they have to spend with their own family because red tape means less time with your kids and your wife and your husband and your and your parents. And secondly, it means it's less time on the land getting on with your own job. And so there comes a point where they simply give up and say, I can't do this anymore. I'm already mm. working 80 hours a week, uh, no. 100 hours a week on the farm. I, I've got 20 mm. or 30 extra hours a week filling out these forms and they I mean, simply give up. Yeah, I, I hate the word, but it's very depressing. I hate that word depressing because you've got to fight against all this, but it does depress the farmers. What about this chilling statistic? For every job created in the environmental bureaucracy, this is what their research has established, 14 jobs have been destroyed in the agricultural sector. For every single job in the bureaucracy, 14 destroyed. These are pernicious forces, this bureaucracy. And the research establishes that the West Australian environmental bureaucracy, just one state, has more than quadrupled while employment in agriculture throughout WA has declined by a third. Daniel, my concern here is, this is outstanding research and long overdue and we desperately need it, Are the farmers being fed this? How do we get this message out? I mean, I just think you and I need to talk about this more on this program, but I mean, it's a very important message. And those wood ducks in Canberra don't seem to care about any of this. Well, they don't care because they're detached from the reality of what's happening. Look, in terms of in terms of how to get the information out, look, as I mentioned, uh, or as you mentioned at the top of our discussion, I was at the Partials and Graziers Association and WA talking about this. We need to get out into the community, provide community leadership to these local groups because, look, the farmers and the people on the land understand this. You know, you don't need to tell them the numbers uh, for them to know what's going on because they yeah, deal with it every day. But we need to communicate this through the community groups and get that out there into the public domain, which we are doing. Um, I just want to make one other point, Alan. Look, we've got a trillion dollars in debt at the national level alone. Interest rates are going up. They're going up fast, which means our debt is only going one way. 
how are we going to pay back this debt? Correct. It's not going to be with more city-based bureaucrats no. holding higher clipboards. Productivity. It's going to be through our resources, higher productivity, yeah. export revenue Correct. and growth. Correct. Outstanding. Daniel, it's always a pleasure to talk and I know our viewers appreciate very much the work that you and the IPA do. We'll talk to you next week. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. And we've just got to get that message across. For God's sake, give the farmers a go. Look, before we go, I must beg your forgiveness, but I do think you would want me to say something about the most self-centred and indulgent person in the world, Meghan Markle. Mm, Meghan Markle, Prince Harry's American divorcee wife who this week has made an absolute fool of herself yet again. Speaking to a One Young World forum, a woke outfit dedicated to fighting for gender equality, climate action, and other irrelevant political causes, Markle delivered a me, me, me speech that showed the true extent of her infinite narcissism. During her seven minute talk, Meghan Markle made at least 54 references to herself. True, 54. She only managed to fit in one brief anecdote about a woman other than herself. And of course, she focused on her totally one-sided view of gender equality. Nothing about how men are more likely to be imprisoned, die at work, die at war, face depression, commit suicide, or suffer from substance abuse issues. None of that matters to Markle. You see, her priorities are one, championing the woke political causes with her elite mates in Hollywood, or two, tearing down the royal family, or playing the victim. The evidence is damning. A few weeks ago, Markle told The Cut publication, she and Prince Harry were, quote, happy to leave Britain and were, quote, upsetting the dynamic of the hierarchy just by existing, unquote, before they stepped down as frontline royals and moved to North America. She made a thinly veiled threat to the royal family saying that it would take, quote, a lot of effort to forgive and hinted that she can say anything now. <laughs> As if she couldn't get any more self-absorbed, Markle then said she'd been compared to South African hero Nelson Mandela and claimed Harry had, quote, lost his father, Charles, during Megxit. She even had a whinge about not having enough money. Listen to this, quote, we were looking at this area, that's Montecito in California, and this house kept popping up online in searches. Markle told the journalist Alison Davis in a recent interview, quote, we didn't have jobs, so we just were not going to come and see this house. It wasn't possible. I don't want to go and look at all the things that I can't afford. That doesn't feel good, Markle said. Prince Harry and Markle later purchased the home for $14.65 million. I mean, seriously, you couldn't make this crap up if you tried, could you? Of course, the punter gets it. Although Markle can fool her mates in Hollywood, nothing she says passes the pub test. Proof? Well, as Megan and Harry climbed out of their car to give their latest woke speech, many of the hundred strong crowd booed from behind a barrier. One protester was carrying a sign that read fake royals, but a woman who gave her name as Janet from Manchester accused Megan of being a liar and a hypocrite and of launching an attack on the royal family. I quote Janet, She's a fake humanitarian and a fake feminist. But Janet wasn't finished. She said she's a social climber. She thought she could be a celebrity in the royal family. And yet she's the most toxic, divisive woman I've ever heard of in my life, unquote. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. 
That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you on Monday night at 8 o'clock. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.